Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, or HEFPEF, affects over 2 million people in the United States. Despite HEFPEF's associated high morbidity and mortality, guideline-directed therapy is limited to symptom and comorbidity management, and the lack of effective treatment options represents a large unmet need in cardiology. Today, our friend and pharmacology expert, Dr. Divya Kandekar, discusses recent literature updates on HEFPEF therapy and provides rationale where previous trials may have fallen short. Heart failure with preserved ejection fraction has often been referred to as a neglected disease state in cardiology, mostly due to the lack of positive clinical trials and effective treatment options despite its high morbidity and mortality. A brand new clinical trial has been recently published, which according to the investigators, provides a promising new treatment option for patients with HFPEF. The trial results were recently announced in the ESC Congress 2021, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and has created a lot of buzz amongst cardiology practitioners. We would be talking about the trial today in the later half of the presentation, but before that, I will be giving you some background on this disease state. In my first objective, I'll be comparing and contrasting the etiologies of HEFREF and HEFPEF, touching upon why HEFPEF is occasionally misdiagnosed. I will then be talking about primary literature, examining current treatment options for HEFPEF and their possible impact. And lastly, I would be identifying the role of HGLT2 inhibitors in the treatment of HEFPEF, uh, focusing on the results of the Emperor Preserve trial. So why is this relevant? As we all know, cardiovascular disease is the number one cause of death in the United States, and our heart failure patients um, constitute a big chunk of this. There are currently six million people in the U.S. uh, that suffer from heart failure, and half a new cases uh, are added to this population each year. To put this in perspective, this is more than the entire population of Minnesota. We currently have about 400,000 deaths per year in the United States from heart failure, and to put that in perspective, uh, it's more than the number of deaths that COVID caused in the year 2020. Total cost of care per year uh, in the United States is about $44 billion, and uh, that's about um, $24,000 per patient per year just in medical costs. So thus generally, we we can see that heart failure is a disease state that has a very high morbidity and mortality. But more importantly, 50% of these patients have preserved ejection fraction or HEFPEF, which is a population that currently does not have many treatment options. So what is heart failure? Simply put, it is the inability of the heart to pump enough blood to meet the demands of the body. So for example, if a patient with heart failure exercises and needs more blood and their heart cannot uh, compensate for that, um, the patient starts experiencing the symptoms of heart failure. One other way of putting it is a decline in cardiac output. And cardiac output is defined as the volume of blood that's pumped by the heart uh, per minute. Once cardiac output decreases, the body activates certain compensatory mechanisms like increasing heart rate and stroke volume with the hope to restore this decreased cardiac output. 
In the short term, it does help the body to get that extra blood flow. But in the long run, uh, patients have symptoms of volume overload, which typically present as uh, dyspnea, weight gain, and peripheral edema. We are generally aware that heart failure is of two types, uh, patients that have preserved ejection fraction and uh, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, uh, based on certain left ventricular ejection fraction criteria. Uh, but this criteria has been highly variable in past guidelines, uh, literature, and uh, the way it was used in clinical trials. So um, a consensus statement, uh, an international consensus statement was released earlier this year to redefine some of these left ventricular ejection fraction limits to help, um, uh, you know, interpret, help us interpret the results of these clinical trials in a better way. So heart failure with reduced ejection fraction is now defined as an ejection fraction of less than or equal to 40%. Heart failure with preserved ejection fraction is an ejection fraction of greater than or equal to 50%. And there is heart failure with mid-range ejection fraction, which is an ejection fraction of 40 to 49%. So now that we know that there are two broad categories of heart failure, how do these patients um, appear to us at diagnosis, and how do these diseases um, differ in pathophysiologies? So our typical HEF-REF patient is about 64 years old, is usually male, has a high incidence of hypertension and a history of at least one myocardial infarction at baseline, and the incidence of AFib and diabetes is about 30%. The NT-pro-BNP values at diagnosis are pretty high in these patients uh, at about 1,400. In contrast, our HEF-PEF patients are largely female, uh, have a mean age that is older, uh, like about 74%, uh, have a much higher incidence of hypertension, actually, and uh, a low incidence of MI compared to our HEFREF patients. As you can see, the NT-pro-BNP values are also a little less, with an average of being 620. And this is even lower if the patients are obese, uh, due to the higher clearance of uh, NT-pro-BNPs in the obese. So talking about the pathophysiologies, and this is one of the things I want you to take away from this presentation, that HEFREF and HEFPEF have very different pathophysiologies. And um, even though the patients you know, might present in a similar way, some experts are now saying that this could be, these two states could be classified as entirely new diseases in the first place. So patients with HEFREF, um, so HEFREF is a disease state that is usually caused by an acute trigger, like a myocardial infarction or an acute infection that leads to cardiac ischemia, tissue injury, and loss of myofilaments. This loss of myofilaments can form scar tissue in the heart and affect the ability of the heart to pump effectively. Because of this, the cardiac output generally goes down, and to compensate for that, the body activates um, certain neurohormonal uh, compensatory systems like the RAS system, which is called the, which is the uh, renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. Neurohormonal dysregulation is an important pathophysiological feature uh, in the development of HEFREF, and this is something I definitely want you to remember. Also to note that a lot of our mortality and morbidity reducing agents like ACE inhibitors, ARBs, aldosterone receptor antagonists, and RNAs target the new hormonal dysregulation part of uh, this pathophysiological uh, manifestation of HEFREF. In contrast, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction is a disease that's, heart, uh, that's highly comorbidity driven. Patients usually have a myriad of uh, comorbidities at baseline, usually about three to four of these, which include hypertension, age, diabetes, COPD, amongst others. 
these uh, diseases and comorbidities uh, interact with each other to cause a generalized state of inflammation in the body, leading to oxidative stress and endothelial dysfunction. Oxidative stress leads to formation of reactive oxygen species, which causes the body to go into a pro-fibrotic state, and that happens even in the myocardium, leading to fibrosis, cardiomyocyte stiffness, and decreased ventricular uh, filling, all um, causing HEFPEF. Something to note here, that, and, and you may have noticed this, that neurohormonal dysregulation is not part of the pathophysiology, or rather it's not the primary pathophysiological feature of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. So now that we generally know that HEFPEF is a disease state that's highly comorbidity driven and can be uh, you know, heterogeneous and pretty complex to diagnose, uh, let's talk about uh, some other things related to it. So to make things more complex, there are other diseases like cardiac amyloidosis, sarcoidosis, constrictive pericarditis, amongst others, that present in a very similar way um, like HEFPEF. So these patients have uh, similar symptoms at baseline. They can have preserved ejection fractions, uh, diastolic dysfunction, and left ventricular hypertrophy. This can make diagnosis very complicated in these patients. I would like to bring your focus to cardiac amyloidosis because I'm going to talk about uh, this particular disease state at a later time. So how then do you diagnose HEFPEF? The first step is looking at the symptoms along with uh, a preserved left ventricular ejection fraction on an echocardiogram. The second step is to look for the presence of diastolic dysfunction, and the absence of that could mean that the symptoms are from some other causes like constrictive pericarditis or non-cardiac dyspnea. The third step is to look at increased left ventricular fillings, and the presence of this usually confirms the diagnosis for HEFPEF. In the absence of increased left ventricular filling pressures, uh, you can look at other things such as increased anti-pro BNPs, AFib, increased LV filling pressures on an exercise echo, or increased systolic pulmonary artery pressures. And this also could confirm a diagnosis of HEFPEF. A right heart catheterization is usually not recommended uh, for the diagnosis of HEFPEF unless there is um, a strong um, indication of having like some other comorbidity like um, pulmonary artery hypertension, for example. Another way of diagnosing HEFPEF is uh, via the use of certain scoring tools. Uh, one of them is the H2FPEF score, which was developed here at Mayo. The idea of this is to calculate a total point score based on the patient's comorbidities uh, and risk factors and uh, use it to calculate a probability of the patient having HEFPEF. So for example, if the score is six on the scale, the probability of the patient having HEFPEF is over 90%. These scores are then matched to the patient's um, initial symptoms and other things like BNPs to confirm a diagnosis. And again, a right heart cath is not always indicated. This brings us to our patient case and our, our first assessment question. So patient AB is a 79-year-old female with the history of NSTEMI that happened three years ago, AFib, hypertension, and obesity with a BMI of 36. She presents to the cardiology clinic with fatigue and worsening shortness of breath after minimal exertion. An echocardiogram is obtained and shows a left ventricular ejection fraction of 55%, evidence of diastolic dysfunction, and high LV filling pressures. The NT-PRO BNP was found to be 900. So the question is, what is the most likely diagnosis for our patient? You can either text your responses to uh, 22333 at MayoRx to join and then uh, indicate your response there, 
or you could also respond to the online app at pollev.com slash mayorx. All right, so it looks like a majority of people did get the right answer, and uh, I think it was pretty straightforward. But just to go over, um, you know, the other options. So the patient um, does not have HFREF or heart failure with a mid-range ejection fraction because uh, the ejection fraction in this patient was 55%, and our cutoffs for uh, HFREF are um, an ejection fraction of less than or equal to 40%, and mid-range is 40 to 49%. The last option that says a right heart catheterization is needed to make a conclusive diagnosis about the type of heart failure. Um, that's not a correct answer because this is usually not recommended, uh, but if the patient has um, other, you know, um, indication for other things like pulmonary artery hypertension and a strong, strong indication for that, um, we would usually uh, get a right heart cath. Um, so now that we have talked about the classification um, you know, general definitions and how to diagnose HFPEF. Uh, let's go over some of the treatments for heart failure. So current guideline-directed medication therapy for HFPEF and HFPEF can be divided into three broad categories. Drugs that reduce mortality, drugs that decrease hospitalizations, and drugs that are used for symptom and comorbidity management. For our HFREF population, we have beta blockers, ACE inhibitors, ARBs, aldosterone antagonists, hydralazine nitrates, and HGLT2 inhibitors, all that have been indicated to reduce mortality. We have drugs like avabradine and digoxin that are known to decrease hospitalizations, and diuretics that are used for symptom management. For our HFPEF population, however, we have no single agent right now that's known to reduce mortality. And there are two drugs, ARBs and aldosterone antagonists, that are known to decrease hospitalizations, but even that indication is not very strong. So our mainstay of treatment for HFPEF is essentially management of symptoms like, um, you know, fluid overload using diuretics and management of comorbidities like blood pressure, uh, including ACE inhibitors, ARBs, and beta blockers. This picture shows... Um, all the different trials, most of them randomized clinical trials that have been conducted for the past two decades for HFPEF treatments. Unfortunately, most of these trials have failed to find uh, a significant benefit in um, you know, either primary or secondary endpoints. So today I'm going to only focus on the trials that did show some benefit, which includes the CHAMP Reserve trial of 2003, the TOPCAT trial of 2014, the Paragon HF trial of 2019, and the Emperor Preserve trial of 2021. The CHOMPRESERV trial was a randomized controlled trial that compared candrosartan, which is an ARB agent, uh, with a target dose of 32 milligrams versus placebo. Patients who had a NYHA functional class of 2 to 4 for at least four weeks before trial enrollment, an LVEF of greater than 40%, and not previously on other ARBs were included in the study. The primary endpoint of CV death and hospitalization composite wasn't met in this trial. In fact, it was narrowly missed with a p-value of 0.051. The secondary endpoint of number of hospitalizations was met with a p-value of 0.047. The trial did have some limitations, uh, the first one being that it included all patients that had a left ventricular ejection fraction of greater than 40%. And as we now know, that a lot of these patients are actually going to have mid-range ejection fraction, which is between 40 to 49. 
Another limitation of this trial was allowing the inclusion of ACE inhibitors at baseline. Uh, and as we know that uh, ACEs and ARPs can interact to cause hypotension, which, which wasn't known at that time, but that could have affected um, some of you know, the results of the trial in a negative way. To further um, maybe talk about this concept, and I'll come back to it later, is that another trial, which was called the iPreserve trial, uh, which studied another ARB, uh, Herbisartran, did not show any difference in either the primary or secondary outcome. And this could have been because of the fact that this trial included patients that had a left ventricular ejection cutoff of greater than or equal to 45%. So based on um, the results of these two trials, ACC-AHA decided to include ARBs in the treatment for HFPEF in their uh, treatment guidelines, but gave it a weak class 2B recommendation. The next trial I'm going to talk about is the TOPCAT trial, which compared spironolactone with a target dose of 45 milligrams versus placebo. Patients who were of age greater than 50 with an NYHA score of uh, classification of 2 to 4, left ventricular ejection fraction of greater than 45, elevated BNPs, uh, potassium of less than 5, and EGFR of less than 30 were included in um, this trial. This trial did not meet the primary outcome as well, and the outcome was CV death, aborted uh, cardiac arrest, and hospitalization composite with a p-value of 0 0.04, uh, sorry, 0 0.14. The secondary endpoint was met in this uh, trial uh, with the number of hospitalizations being reduced in spironolactone with a p-value of 0 0.04, which was statistically significant. The results of the post hoc analysis of the TOPCAT trial is uh, pretty interesting, and I wanted to spend a little bit of time on that. So the post hoc analysis did find uh, significant regional differences uh, between two groups. So one of them was the Americas, so that included USA, Canada, Argentina, and Brazil, and then uh, our patients in Eastern Europe. Looking at the primary outcomes, so we can see that uh, patients in the Americas did meet um, our primary endpoint of uh, our composite uh, cardiovascular benefit with a p-value of 0.026, whereas it wasn't met in our Eastern European cohort with a p-value of 0.5. When you look at the incidence of the primary outcome um, in both these groups, you can see that the patients in the Americas had a um, you know, primary outcome of about about in the 20 to 30 percent, uh, which is what you would typically see in HFPEF patients. Whereas if you look at your Eastern European cohort, they had much lesser mortality, which was about 8 to 9 percent, making us, you know, uh, turning us towards the fact that uh, these patients may not have had HFPEF um, uh, at baseline. So that's uh, something that has been controversial. Examination of frozen samples for candrenone uh, in patients' plasmas, and candronone is a metabolite of spironolactone, uh, found that 30% uh, of the patients in Eastern Europe had undetectable levels of candronone, uh, which hints us towards the fact that maybe these patients were either non-compliant or there were some um, protocol issues uh, in the Eastern European cohort. So based on the results of the TOPCAT trial, ACCHA did include ARBs in the treatment guidelines for HFPEF, but again gave it a weak Category 2B recommendation. The third trial I'm going to talk about is the Paragon HF trial, which compared secubitril valsartan with valsartan. The inclusion criteria was similar like to our uh, TOPCAT trial, and this trial failed to find a significant benefit or improvement in both our primary and secondary endpoint. 
As you can see, the composite primary endpoint of CV death and hospitalization was narrowly missed with a p-value of 0.06, and so was hospitalization because, as you can see, the you know, the, the HR limits include uh, one, which means it was not statistically significant. Um, one thing to note about this trial is that this was the only trial that used an active comparator, which was Valsartan, and there's been some controversy about that because Valsartan in previous trials or hasn't been studied really in HFPEF and has known to, you know, known to have no uh, benefit in these patients, making us think, you know, whether or not it was even a good active comparator for this trial. The Paragon HF trial did show some benefit in the subgroup analysis with uh, patients uh, with a mean LVEF of less than or equal to 50 per, uh, 57% uh, having statistical significance, as well as women. So based on the results of this trial, uh, FDA actually extended its uh, indication for use of Entresto or Sacubital Valsartan to patients with HFPEF. Whether or not uh, this is appropriate was up to discussion, as we know that the trial failed to meet both primary and secondary endpoints. Uh, but the reason for the FDA approval was based on the fact that it did have some benefit in the subgroup analysis, um, but also this drug is known to be very safe uh, based on some of the data from our HEF-REF trials. The FDA did put um, a disclaimer in the label saying that LVEF uh, cutoffs are usually open to interpretation and that a clinical judgment should be applied anytime these drugs are to be recommended. So this brings to us to our next assessment question. So patient AB was now diagnosed with HFPEF. Her BP was found to be 141 over 88 in the clinic. She was started on oral furosemide 20 milligrams daily for the management of her volume overload symptoms. And her provider asks which other agent should be started for the treatment of her HFPEF. Our first option is candrosartan. Uh, so we have to pick uh, which of the following is a correct treatment and treatment rationale pair as an add-on treatment for uh, patient AB. Our first option is candrosartan, and the reason being that ARBs may decrease hospitalizations and decrease blood pressure. Second option is spironolactone because aldosterone receptor antagonists provide a mortality benefit in HFPEF. Secubitril valsartan because RNAs decrease hospitalizations in HFPEF. And none of the above because diuretics alone should be used for the treatment of HFPEF. So it looks like most of the people here did get the right answer. And I'll talk about why the other answers uh, were incorrect or um, well, I can pro try to provide a rationale of maybe why the uh, why the people here could have thought of option C as we see here. Um, so for option B, uh, spironolactone um, is not the correct answer because uh, aldosterone receptor antagonists uh, did not provide a mortality benefit in HFPEF according to the TOPCAT trial. It did, however, have an hospitalization benefit, but uh, that's not the rationale provided here. Sacubitril valsartan, I can see why some pe people might have thought about that uh, based on uh, the fact that FDA did approve this drug for HFPEF, but uh, according to the results of the Paragon HF trial, there was no improvement in either the primary or the secondary hospitalization uh, endpoint in this trial. Um, I was actually expecting some people to use, uh, to select the option D because uh, currently in practice, we have seen a lot of uh, providers uh, sticking uh, to, you know, just using diuretics for symptomatic management of these patients. 
uh, but now that we have we are having newer treatments and, and some evidence is supported um, option a for me uh, is a little more appropriate uh, just because candesartan uh, did show an improvement in uh, hospitalizations uh, in the CHOM-PRESERVE trial, but also because the patient's blood pressure is elevated, this would be a great agent to reduce the patient's blood pressure as well. So it does have that dual comorbidity uh, reducing effect as well. All right, so we have seen that uh, a lot of effort has been put in to design trials specifically for HEFPEF, and we have not had a lot of success with uh, some of those trials. So I wanted to briefly... Um, talk about a possible rationale for failure of these HEFPEF trials. And while researching this topic and looking at what others have said about it, I found that two reasons could be very relevant. One relates to the differences in etiologies of HEFPEF and HEFREF, and the second uh, talks about inclus inclusion of patients with cardiac amyloidosis. So as we know, HEFREF is a disease uh, which has neurohormonal dysregulation as its primary mechanism. Uh, and all of our drugs that were shown to improve mortality and morbidity targets the new neurohormonal dysregulation piece. And it, it makes sense uh, for this because uh, neurohormonal dysregulation is a primary uh, pathophysiological feature. However, in our HEFPEF patients, uh, neurohormonal dysregulation is not a primary a pathophysiological feature, uh, which makes us think that these targets uh, may not have been the appropriate targets for trial development. And this maybe is reinstated by the fact that some of our trials which did have a positive impact, like the CHARM Preserve trial, um, there were external uh, subgroup analysis studies that looked at mid-range ejection fractions and found that most of the effect of candesartan in the CHARM Preserve um, in, in the chart preserve trial was mostly seen in the mid-range ejection fraction. This could mean that the trial being positive was related to a lot of patients being included in the mid-range ejection fraction. And uh, past studies have also shown that patients in mid-range ejection fraction tend to behave a lot like our, um, uh, like a preserved ejection fraction patients, um, having some of those common pathophysiological features. This is for further proven by the fact that the iPreserve trial, which had higher LVEF cutoffs, failed to show any significance in either the primary or secondary endpoint. This brings us to our uh, second reason of um, cardiac amyloidosis patients being, being involved in some of these trials. Uh, cardiac amyloidosis, just like all these other states that we talked about, have similar symptoms uh, of preserved EF diastolic dysfunction and can be very difficult to separate out from our HEFPEF population. In the pathophysiology of cardiac amyloidosis, there's a protein called amyloid that uh, gets deposited in different tissues in the body, uh, the myocardium being one of the sites, and this increases ventricular stiffening, causing a HEFPEF-like syndrome. The Paragon HF trial mentioned the possibility of cardiac amyloidosis patients being in included, resulting into uh, the trials being, uh, being not found, uh, you know, having any positive outcomes. The incidence of uh, cardiac amyloidosis in other trials was found to be 5 to 17 percent. And as you can see, this is pretty significant, especially when our, um, you know, our p-values were so close and very narrowly missed uh, in some of these trials. Not only do cardiac amyloidosis patients lack response to treatment, but it was found that these patients could actually be harmed by some of our traditional, um, you know, HEFPEF treatments, uh, again, impacting the trials in a negative way. 
This brings us to our last objective of the use of SGLT2 inhibitors in HFPEF. SGLT2 inhibitors were initially um, studied and approved in the, uh, in the treatment of diabetes mellitus type 2. Uh, and some of those initial trials found that um, the drug did have benefits in cardiovascular outcomes. So larger clinical trials called, called CWATS, cardiovascular outcome trials, were designed to look at some of these cardiovascular effects in more detail. Most of these studies did find an improvement in some of, you know, the uh, cardiovascular endpoints. And based on the results of those trials, then um, more studies were desi designed to look specifically at patients with HFPEF and HFREF and see if there was any benefit in um, reducing hospitalizations or even death. The primary mechanism of SGLT2 inhibitors uh, is the fact that it binds to the sodium glucose transporter 2 in the proximal convoluted tube of the renal nephron. Uh, this is the site of 90% glucose absorption, which makes it a great target uh, for blood glucose reduction. So these drugs bind and reduce uh, the reabsorption of glucose into blood, thus reducing blood glucose levels. In addition to the mechanism we just talked about, HGLT2 inhibitors are known to have uh, other benefits, which uh, helps us to understand the rationale for use in HFPEF. So they are excellent diuretics, which help us uh, manage blood pressure in these patients. Uh, they also can reduce symptoms of volume overload, being excellent diuretics. Uh, some clinical trials have shown that um, SGLT2 inhibitors improve endothelial dysfunction. And as we know, endothelial dysfunction is a common feature of both diabetes and HFPEF, as we previously talked about. The drugs also have, have some metabolic effects, including weight loss and increased insulin sensitivity. Something of importance here is that the action of SGL2 inhibitors is independent of blood glucose levels and has cardiovascular benefits in patients with or without diabetes. So let's talk about the Emperor Preserve trial. The Emperor Preserve trial was a phase three multicenter double blind RCT that compared empagliflozin or Jardians, the target dose of 10 milligrams with usual care. Patients that were adults with a BMI of less than 45 NYHA class of 2 to 4, and left ventricular ejection fraction of greater than 40% in addition to elevated BNPs were included in the trial. The trial had a, uh, has a, prim had a primary composite outcome of CV death or hospitalizations, which was found to be statistical sig statistically significant with a p-value of less than 0.001%. Uh, if you look at the individual components of the outcome, uh, patients uh, did not meet statistical significance in the CV death arm, but did meet significance in the hospitalization arm. There was 3.3% absolute risk reduction between the two groups, and the number needed to treat was 30 over 26 months to prevent one CV death or hospitalization. Secondary outcomes that were shown to have uh, improvements were uh, total hospitalizations for HFPEF with the p-value of less than uh, 0.001. There was an improvement in EGFR decline as well, showing uh, some benefit in renal function in these patients. And as far as the safety endpoints, uh, our empagliflozin arm um, did have a higher incidence of uncomplicated genital and urinary tract infections and hypotension. So even though the primary endpoint was met, uh, subgroup analysis showed that uh, certain groups uh, did, not have, uh, did not meet statistical significance, and that included 
patients with a left ventricular ejection fraction of greater than or equal to 60%, a BMI of greater than or equal to 30%, aldosterone receptor antagonist use at baseline, age less than 70 years, and NYHA class of three to four. And this could um, have a significant effect uh, as when we talk about patient selection and whom to apply this trial on. Um, so as we know that our HFF patients are usually, or most of them are going to have an ejection fraction of greater than or equal to 60. And because you know the subgroup analysis did not show a statistically significant difference. The question is, can we extrapolate the results of this trial to, these, uh, to this sub-cohort? Um, the second one I wanted to point out is a BMI of greater than 30. So obesity is um, a pretty common comorbidity in our HFPEF population. So uh, again, whether or not it can be applied to this patient cohort uh, is still questionable. So this brings to us to our uh, patient case and our third assessment question. So patient AB, as we know, was diagnosed with HFPEF and was subsequently started on oral furosemide and uh, candesartan now. Just to remind you of her comorbidities, uh, she's older female, 79 years old, uh, with a history of NSTEMI, AFib, hypertension, and obesity. The LVEF on the echo was 55%, and the NT pro-BNP values were 900. So based on the results of the emperor Preserve trial, would you add empagliflozin to AB's, AB's HEFPEF regimen? The first answer is uh, yes. Second is no, A and B. Thanks for your responses. So we do see a split between the two answers here, and um, this is something I was expecting. And uh, this question really was to see how each of you as practitioners uh, interpret the results of the trial. And uh, there have been several different interpretations, so I'm not surprised at these results. Uh, for me personally, if I look at this particular patient, uh, the patient obviously does have HFPAF. The left ventricle ejection fraction was 55. Uh, which is less than the 60, uh, less than or equal to 60 uh, cutoff, uh, where the trial showed that anything above that did not have a statistically significant benefit. Uh, so personally, uh, me, I would uh, consider using empagliflozin in this population or, or in this patient. I can see why some people might have picked no as an answer, and that is probably because uh, the patient was obese with a BMI of uh, greater than, I think it was 36. And I think that is appropriate as well. However, if you look at these patients, most of them, as we know, are going to have uh, a BMI that's uh, more than normal in the 30s range. And because no other trial actually showed any benefit in that cohort, I think we are limited with our number of options for these patients. So I would not be uncomfortable extending uh, the results of this trial to that cohort as well. So let us uh, put together some of the things that we just talked about and then look at treatment considerations and what patients we can use this trial or this drug in. The first thing to look at is if our patient with HFPEF has baseline diabetes or no. If the patient has diabetes, I think it's pretty much a slam dunk. We can definitely recommend um, SGLT2 inhibitors irrespective of the left ventricular ejection fraction cutoffs just because it has a dual benefit in both these disease states. However, if the patient does not have diabetes, uh, I would recommend looking at uh, ejection fraction cutoffs first. So in patients with LVEF of 50 to 59, 
uh, I think we can go ahead and recommend SGLT2s uh, in this population uh, because it was shown that they do have a positive benefit in the subgroup analysis. If, however, the left ventricular ejection fraction is greater than or equal to 60 percent, the trial can, the, uh, the drug can be considered in this population, but our sub, uh, subgroup analysis did show that, or rather we cannot make a conclusive, uh, a, a, a prominent conclusion like based on that cutoff. Some other considerations to think about are age, uh, obesity, as we talked about, uh, baseline use of aldosterone receptor antagonists, uh, NYHA, functional class at baseline. But I think these, all of these are more of uh, soft targets, and uh, I would recommend for each practitioner to uh, look at the patient as a whole and base their decisions off the patient's overall picture. One thing I would like to talk about is the cost. And uh, even though these trials uh, and this drug did, does show a benefit, uh, something to keep in mind is that these drugs can be expensive as they are uh, brand drugs. Uh, the average cost of treatment for Jardians for someone who doesn't have insurance is about $500 per month. So that's something you would definitely want to consider uh, while starting these medications. So in summary of everything we talked about today, HEF-REF uh, is a clinical state that is usually caused by a trigger like a myocardial infarction that leads to cardiac ischemia, uh, decreased ability of the heart to pump blood, and neurohormonal dysregulation. In contrast, HEF-PEF is a disease that's most likely comorbidity-driven, um, and uh, the main pathophysiological features are inflammation and endothelial dysfunction that causes stiffness. There's lack of strong evidence to support the use of ARBs, aldosterone receptor antagonist, and secubitril valsartan, but may be considered in certain patients to reduce hospitalizations. And lastly, empagliflozin can be recommended in patients with HEFPEF with or without diabetes, and especially when left ventricular ejection fractions less than 60%, and in patients who are non-obese and older. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.